Um, but the sermon series is, did Jesus really say? So we're walking through um, difficult sayings of Jesus, things that he said, uh, stories that he told, that either some of them um, we just don't get, and therefore we jump to uh, some, some conclusion that's not what he intended, or maybe we really do get them, and they just are hard to hear, and they're hard to, uh, to, to receive. So that's what we're doing, which means, uh, which means it's a lot of fun, but a, but, a, but a big challenge. It means we have to dive into that kind of uh, his, his context and to whom he was speaking so that we can understand how they would have heard it. So then we can, we can understand kind of the original meaning, what he was, what he was communicating, uh, and then we'd be able to apply it more accurately and more faithfully. So last week we talked about Jesus uh, being tested by the Pharisees, by the religious and political leaders of the time. They were testing him about how to relate to the empire that was even then claiming lordship over God's people and God's land. And they asked him, how do we relate to them? Or what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? And they asked him that by saying, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Um, This week, it's it's the same conversation and actually an earlier part of that conversation. Um, If you remember from last week, Jesus has just... Uh, this is at the end of his uh, earthly ministry. He has just ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and that's symbolic language. Again, we have to kind of get into that first century. He's saying, I am the king of all of this place. And then he goes to the temple, and he, and he does his action, which some of us call the cleansing of the temple, but really uh, more accurately is probably uh, better referred to as the judgment of the temple. He's not sweeping it straight so it can get back to its da- daily business. He is judging it, saying this institution is no longer how God will meet with his people. It's no longer the means of God's um, rescue and God's forgiveness. And then he uh, proceeds through the week to have this discourse with the people. He heals in the temple courts and he teaches. But then, of course, the, the religious establishment, the people who are in power and foster their power by being attached to the temple, are frustrated with him. So they come to him and they, they, wanna, they, they challenge him and they talk to him. And he's just told a parable right before this one. We're in, this is the second of, kind of, of these parallel parables in many ways. The one right before this... Um, is about the about tenants who rent a vineyard and they uh, and when the landlord sends his servants to collect the fruit that is due to him collect his rent they kill the servants then the then the landlord sends other servants they kill those two and the landlord sends finally his son and it says they threw the son out of the vineyard they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard too Jesus in these two parables is retelling the story of Israel He's retelling this story. Israel is the people whom God has set up in this cushy place, this great vineyard, for whom he's thrown this gigantic party and invited them, but they have rejected him. And he's kept coming back, and they continue to reject him. And he sent his servants, the prophets, and they've killed him. And then finally he sent his son. So Jesus is saying, I am the culmination, I am, I am the climax of this story of Israel. It is all coming to a head right now in front of you. That's the story he's telling to these these Pharisees. This gets fun. Ready? 
So at the end of that last parable, right before we picked up ours, he talks about this stone. And he says, you know the quote from, from, um, that you've heard from Psalm 118, that the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118 is a, is, a, is a psalm about the temple. And Jesus is saying, I'm that stone. I am the new cornerstone of the new temple. I am the new way. That is me. That old temple is going away. It's going to be judged. Then he continues to say, it gets really complicated here. We didn't do this one because I couldn't even handle it. Um, He continues and he says, and the stone is going to, he continues to refer to the stone that will crush the nations. And he's, that time it's not the cornerstone of the temple, it's the stone from Daniel, which is an old, who is an Old Testament prophet who had a vision that this stone was going to roll off the mountain and it's going to get larger. You get this picture that gets larger and larger and then crushes the evil empires of the world. The evil empires that have oppressed God's people and it becomes, and this stone becomes a mountain that eventually fills the whole earth. Jesus is saying, I am the stone that is going to crush the evil empires and he says, it's, and, and he says you are the ones who are being crushed by this stone. So, if you can imagine, put yourself in their shoes, they've just been told the way that they have operated their lives, the temple, the center of their lives, is, going, is, is being destroyed. Not only that, that you, and so in, in, in the way you've gone about connecting with your God, and the way you've gone about expressing your faith, you have become an evil empire, parallel to the Babylonians, who burned, who, who destroyed the first temple, and carried God's people off into exile, who, in awful ways, and parallel to the Romans, who are even now claiming dominion over an, an evil dominion over God's people and God's land. He's saying, you Pharisees are the evil empire. It'd be like hearing that you're part, one of Darth Vader's cronies, that you're not actually part of the rebel alliance with Luke and Han and Leia. That'd be bad news, right? Like, that'd be hard to hear. You'd be like, come on, man. They plot to, not surprisingly, the last night they're going to plot to kill him and arrest him. But then he goes on, like he's, he's not done. He's not, he's not, he just keeps on pouring it on. And he tells the parable that we're looking at today. And again, he's giving the whole, he's giving Israel's story again. God graciously invites, they reject. He comes back and invites again. They, they kill the servants and mistreat them. But then God, this king, destroys their cities and burns them to the ground. Jesus is acting as a prophet now, prophesying the future in which Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in the year 70 AD. You've heard of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, maybe? That is the last wall of this temple that Jesus is even now teaching and talking in. That temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and all of Jerusalem was burned. Um, and that wailing wall is all that's left. And so the so Orthodox Jews now go there and wail for the, for the non-existent temple that they wish would come back. So Jesus is proclaiming the end of all of this and the judgment of this. And he's, he's showing that he is the climax and the turning point. That now it's not the nobles who are being invited to the feast, but it's everywhere, everybody on the streets, the good and the bad. Okay? Long setup, but that's where we are in our story. That's where we are. That's that is the uh, situation into which this parable is being told. So, three things that I'll have to go very quickly now because of the long intro. Three things. God is accepting. The invitation is insulting. 
and the party is expensive. God is accepting, the invitation is insulting, and the party is expensive. To understand this story, most of us want to jump into the judgment part. What about this king who burns stuff and throws and like ties people up? Let's talk about that. But to, in order to understand that, in order to really address that, you have to see who this God is first and what he has already done. You see, the point of these judgment parables is that nobody is kicked out who is not already first in. So the king sends invitations, presumably to the nobles, to those who would be invited to the wedding banquet of the son of of the king. And it's not mentioned here, but you've got to assume that he sent some kind of written invitation or some some sort of invitation beforehand, right? Nobody throws a wedding party and then just says on the day of, at the moment when everything is ready, that you guys should come now. So he sends an invitation ahead of time. One invitation. The second time he goes out and he says, nobody's here. He sends his servants out and they go and they say, it's ready. Come on. Second invitation. Nobody comes. And then the third invitation. I love this one. He says to them, not only, he doesn't just say, what are you doing? Get over here. Don't you know that I'm going to get mad? He doesn't do that. He says, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. He doesn't use threats. He paints a beautiful picture for his guests. He's already been rejected twice. Twice he's been told, no thank you. But he, but he comes to them again in gentleness and he woos them. He's wooing them. He's enticing them. This is a very, this is, this is an accepting God. And only then, only after all of those rejections, does he take action that we would consider judgment. And then, the, the, uh, the, then he goes out from there and he sends his servants out into the roads. And he says, invite anyone. And they do. And it says the wedding banquet was filled with the good and the bad. This is a wedding banquet that, that, that people are coming to and they don't, they're not the nobles. They're not, the, the, you know, they're not related to the royalty. They, these are people that eat with their hands and blow their nose on the tablecloth. These are people that look like pigs and smell twice as bad. These are people who don't have wedding clothes, who, who certainly don't have the manners that, um, so as to not offend anybody at a feast like this. These are people who are a mess. They're a mess. And he invites them in. And because they're, they're the good and the bad, they're the poor, he, he provides them clothes. He gives them the appropriate wedding garments to participate in his party. He is so accepting. Just before this, in the same conversation... Jesus is condemning again these same Pharisees and saying, you have not received, you have not received God's invitation. But you know who has? The prostitutes and the tax collectors. The people that use God's greatest gift to them, their physical existence and their life, and they sell it. Those are the people who are in. Those are the people who are part of my God's family, who are even now in celebrating in his banquet. 
He doesn't say the former prostitutes or the former tax collectors. He doesn't put qualifications on this invitation. He doesn't say you have to fix yourself. He doesn't say that you have to be, you have to learn some manners or at least take a bath or at least put on the right clothes. There are no qualifications to this invitation. There are no qualifications to this invitation. And because of that, because of that, the invitation is insulting. God is, more, God is accepting, but the invitation is insulting. I'm a person, I've realized recently, who is slow to say thank you. I could give you a lot of examples. I don't like saying thank you. I don't like it. My aunt, a number of years ago, you know, I, I was still a grown man, so this is inexcusable. But a number of years ago, my aunt sends me a birthday card. I think she probably she probably put twenty bucks in it, um, which is great news to like a poor dad of three kids and twenty dollars. You know what kind of happiness I can buy with this? So a week goes by, maybe ten days, and I get a call from my aunt. Hey, Aunt Sarah Lee, says, Hey, I just wanted to make sure you got that wedding. I mean, the uh, the uh, birthday card I sent you. Did you get that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. So, okay, just wanted to make sure it didn't get lost in the mail or anything. No, it didn't get lost in the mail. I've got it. I have got it. You see, I didn't call my aunt or write her a, a thank you note. I didn't express gratitude to her. You might say, I'm, you probably just forget. Well, I'll tell you one thing I didn't forget. I didn't forget to spend that money. But somehow I conveniently forgot to offer gratitude to my aunt. Saying thank you is hard for me. There are a lot of reasons to, to, to not say thank you. One of them is, does this mean that we have to be friends? When you say thank you, you're essentially saying, like that's something you, it's, it's got to be on the table. They've just given you something. When you acknowledge it, you're, kind of, you're acknowledging there's some, kind of, there's some kind of debt between you. They gave you something and now they don't have it anymore. If it was money or even if it was just time, um, they've given something, given something of themselves, and now maybe there's a, there's a debt that you don't want to pay or you're unable to pay. So being grateful is tough. You also have to ask, does this mean you're bigger than me? Does this mean you're better than me? When you acknowledge, when you, when you express gratitude, when you receive a gift like that and, 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 and express gratitude, and the way this parable is talking about, you have, to, you have to acknowledge like somehow you're bigger. You're above me. You disadvantaged yourself to my advantage. And you have to see yourself as a little bit smaller. You have to see yourself not as this independent and strong, capable, powerful individual. You have to see yourself as somebody who is, who is dependent. Somebody who receives I don't like saying thank you. I don't like it. See, my version of this parable would be much more like this. There was this king, and he said, if you come do my laundry, then you can live in the castle, and then I'll leave you alone. Yeah. All right, I'm in. I'll do that. I get to live in the castle. I get the safety. I get all those benefits. 
But then I do something in return. Like I, I earn my keep. I get to earn my keep. It's a lot like a fraternity. For you covenant people, a fraternity is this really cool thing that happens at secular schools. It's okay to have missed out. There's always the new heavens and the new earth. I'm sure they'll be there. Charlie Rash fraternity, right? All right, we're not, neither of us are covenant dudes, outsiders. All right, fraternity. In a fraternity, you have, to do, you have to go through pledging. You get hazed so that you can be on the inside circle. But then when you're on the inside circle, you went through all this stuff. You paid your dues, so you get to dish it out to other people. You have rights. That happens a lot on sports teams, right? The freshmen get hazed. They have to go get the water. They have to clean up after practice. But then when you're junior and senior, you don't got to get the water anymore. Somebody else does that. You have rights. You pay your dues and then you've got rights. That's my version of this parable. I would much rather be like that. And then Jesus is saying, you didn't pay your dues. You didn't do enough. So you're out. That's judgment. That is not what he is saying. He says, you didn't accept the limitless invitation. And that's why you're out. You see, I want to be, um, I want to have my rights. I think that's hard about accepting an invitation like this. In order to accept this invitation, you have to stand up, raise your hand, and say, I am a charity case. I am helpless and hopeless. I do not belong at that party. There is nothing that I have done that has earned my place at that party. It has all been given to me, and I am smaller. I am lower. Lower. I am dependent. You remember, he's speaking to the religious leaders who have spent their entire lives building their record, trying to do all the things that are right so that they can be on the inside. No wonder it's so um, insulting to them and so insulting to us. But receiving help, when you can graciously receive it, that's good news, isn't it? You know, uh, Roger Maris, many of you guys know who this is. He broke the, um, the Major League Baseball home run record in 1961. He hit 61 home runs that year. But the, the uh, commissioner of baseball wanted to, uh, to either adjust the record or somehow, um, somehow put an asterisk beside it. Because Babe Ruth had the previous record of 60 home runs in one year, and he did that in a 154-game schedule. Previously, there was 150. That's a lot of baseball games, by the way. 154 games, Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. Roger Maris, by that time, they expanded the season to 162 games. So he had, he had that many more games to hit his home runs. So he wanted to put an asterisk beside the, um, beside the record, beside the number 61 asterisk, footnote, it really wasn't as good as Babe Ruth. It really wasn't all that. I mean, it was okay and good, but it wasn't that good. He wanted to modify the enjoyment of that record. And that's what we do when we, when we, ex- when we accept things without gratitude. Right? I went to go spend my aunt's money that she sent me for my birthday, but I have to be thinking a number of things. One, I have to be thinking, 
I'm probably good enough to deserve this anyways. So I have to do that like kind of mental gymnastics. I, I'm a, I've always been a good nephew. Yeah. Or I'll make, I'll make it up to her. Maybe I'll go visit her the next time I'm in town. I'll even the score here. I'll take care of that. You know, I have to be thinking some of these things. And so the, the actual enjoyment of the gift is reduced by my desire to think that I own it or can earn it or, or, or am worthy of it. But if you just graciously accept it, that asterisk is taken away. And then it's just a gift that you got and you can enjoy without the, all the mental gymnastics of earning it. Some givers, however, want to give with that in mind. They want the asterisk beside the gift, right? Some people, that you have to resist that because that's what they're actually trying to do. And I will refuse right now to say anything about parents of adult children as an example. Thank you, Rachel. Only one person laughed last time, too. Did you get that one? Parents of adult children, they're manipulative. You guys are awful. Okay, here we go. All right. So this is what happens. There's an asterisk beside the man without the right clothes on. He's got an asterisk beside him. He's not enjoying the wedding banquet. He's saying, I'm going to sit back. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to come in to the banquet, but I'm not going to put the clothes on that, that are being offered. Uh, maybe he thinks he's good enough as is, and why should somebody tell me I'm not good enough? These are good clothes. I earn them with my own sweat and, and, and hard work. Maybe he's just going to sit back and watch for a while and see if this party is good enough to, for him, or see if he's good enough for the party. Either way, he's not accepting the kindness of the king. That's what's being judged here. It's not a moral failure. It's a failure to receive. It's a failure to just say, I'll take it. You're right. I'm needy. I don't have the right clothes. I don't belong at such a great party. I'll take it. You know, if he had said, you get the, the sense with this king and how gracious he is, that if this guy had said anything, if he had said anything, the king would have made it okay. He would have interacted with him. He would, he would, have, he would have dealt with him. But he says nothing. He makes no relational move, positive or negative, towards this king. He wants the blessings without the relationship. He doesn't want to receive it all. So the invitation is insulting. God is accepting, but the invitation is insulting. And lastly, almost lastly, the party is expensive. The party is expensive. You know, some people like to, I mean, we all like to question, why does there have to be judgment at all? Why can't this king just let them go their merry way? Why don't, he, why don't he just leave them alone? You know, it's interesting to note that we're, we're the ones with that problem. The problem with what this king did does not exist in this original context. In the, in the parable before this, when um, that I talked about, about the, um, the vineyard and the wine press, and they throw, they kill those servants and throw, they kill the son and throw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus turns the question onto his hearers and says, what do you think that king is going to do? And they say to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. They've got no problem with justice. 
They've got no problem with things, with the scales being leveled. It's been said before that if you live in a land soaked in the blood of your relatives, where you've seen your land seized and all your possessions taken at the whim of, of, an, of a tyrant, where you've seen your wives and your daughters abused, you're not going to be one of these people who believes in an all-accepting God because you couldn't live with that. You have to believe in a God who evens the scales at the end of all things, who sets things to rights. We're the ones with this problem. So we say, why can't he just be accepting? Why can't he just let me be who I am? I think the obvious question, or maybe the not so obvious question after that is, what does it cost this God to love you? Well, the answer is, well, nothing, nothing. It doesn't cost him anything. Why would it? Well, let's turn that same question on your best friend or your spouse. What does it cost that person to be in a relationship with you? See, in every relationship, there's tears and there's passion, there's forgiveness, there's interaction, because that's a relationship. If you say, if you're going to say that your, your friend, your, your best friend, your spouse, it costs them nothing to be in a relationship with you, my next question to you is, how lonely are you? Because it means you're not in a real relationship if there is no cost associated to being near you. So the question we ask of a fully accepting God is, what does it cost you to be this, this accepting The king in this parable had to put up with stinky people. He had to put up with bad manners. But the answer is more full than that. In this parable, it's at the last week of Jesus' life. He is on his way to the cross. He has carefully orchestrated this week of his life. He has done all these things on purpose to drive towards what he knows is coming. His death and his resurrection. And we have to read this parable in that light. And the parable gives us a hint. The one before it says they're going to take the son, kill him, and throw him outside of the vineyard. In this parable it says that the the man who is judged is going to be put into outer darkness. Outside is a bad place to be if you live in the first century. There are no street lights. There is no police force. If you are outside the city, then you are very vulnerable. You are outside of protection you're outside of provision the walls of each of these cities all had walls around them so that they could be protected from the enemies outside of them being outside the city is a picture of judgment being outside the city of jerusalem means you are far away from the presence of god that rests in the temple you're far away from his presence and his blessings so this man is thrown into outer darkness darkness is the opposite of light. And God calls himself the God of light. You see, Matthew goes to great pains to tell us that Jesus was crucified outside of the city gates. And that when he was crucified, there was darkness over all the land from about noon until 3 p.m. And right then, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, if you're rejected by an acquaintance, by somebody you know, like a business acquaintance, and they say, I don't like what you're doing, I'm walking away, that stings a little bit. 
But if you're rejected by, by a close friend or a family member, and they say, I don't want anything to do with you, I'm walking away from this relationship. That is almost insurmountably painful. Jesus, Jesus was judged outside, outside of the city, away from God's presence. Darkness fell, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you rejected me? He was rejected by the God, who, by, by his Father, this eternal relationship of ultimate and complete intimacy and knowledge and love. And at that moment, at that moment, he received the rejection of his father. Hell broke loose on Jesus' head so that he could offer that limitless invitation to you and me. That's what it means that we have in accepting God. That's how serious our refusal to accept this invitation is. That is what is at stake. God is accepting. The invitation is, is, is insulting. And the party is expensive. And lastly, the mission is bigger. When you see yourself as this party guest, we are party guests at this, at this, you know, this limitless invitation, this, this invitation with no strings attached. It's not an invitation that puts us in debt. It's an invitation that puts us in joy. And so much joy that we want to offer, we want to extend back. And then we can see ourselves in this parable, um, not only as the wedding guests, but also as the servants of the king. The servants who, in this great news, go out from him, offering this, this clean and beautiful invitation to everyone, the good and the bad, to anyone who will listen. These are servants who are mistreated and even killed. But how does the father respond? He goes out and he burns those cities down. Do you know a God who is that crazy about you? Who is that, uh, that passionate for you? There is someone that he has put in your circle of influence who needs to know a God like that. Would you pray about how he may want you to extend this invitation to that person this week? Father, we need to hear from you. We need your word to us. Um, And now we need this meal for us. We want to know this invitation that you've given. We want to know it. Amen.